Paul Gascoigne and Gareth Southgate are both integral to the story of Euro 96 in very different ways. They were at different parts of their career, were different kinds of players and had deeply contrasting personalities. One scored the goal that encapsulated how England fans felt during the tournament, while the other missed the penalty that sent the three Lions out. The new issue of 442 magazine is a Euro 96 special, including in-depth profiles of both Gaza and Gaz Southgate. I'm Connor Pope, and for today's episode of the 442 podcast, we're going to be delving into these two characters, using Euro 96 as a jumping-off point to explore the two players' histories. I'm joined by Cy Hawkins, who wrote the Paul Gascoigne profile, Gary Parkinson, who wrote the cover feature on the tournament, and staff writer Chris Flanagan. So Chris Flanagan has provided a wonderful question, which I'll, I'll pose now, but I'll, answer, I'll get him to answer it at the end of today's podcast, which is, who won more caps, Paul Gascoigne or Gareth Southgate? Which I think is a brilliant question, because Southgate played in more tournaments, but, but Gascoigne was a staple of the side for so long that I genuinely didn't know the answer when Chris asked it. I know it now, but we'll, Chris, we'll come to you at the end to provide the answer, leave people knowing that they have to listen to the entirety of this podcast to find that out. I want to start with you, Si. You wrote this fantastic feature on Paul Gascoigne in the magazine. Uh, Gascoigne was 29, Southgate was 25 in 1996. But how had Gascoigne's international career gone since receiving the yellow card against Germany in 1990? What happened in that kind of six-year gap? Well, so Graham Taylor took over, obviously, after um, after 1990. And, I mean, one of the first things he did was drop Gaza, was drop Paul Gascoigne mm. uh, for the Ireland game away. There was, I think we had Ireland home and away in the, um, in the Euro qualifiers. And he, and he dropped Paul Gascoigne for um, Gordon Cowans, which was a bit of a national... Uh, Paul Gascoigne was everywhere at this point. Mm. Gazamania was at its height. It was, he was the most famous person in the country. So was there outrage around that then? I think I can't really remember, but yeah, no, I, I'm pretty sure yes. there was. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it was one of those. It was. A, a, I mean, Taylor wanted to put his mark on the team. Mm. He wanted to make a statement. It's a tricky job to come into. I think you've. The, I think 1990 changed football. It changed people's perceptions of football. It got a whole lot of people into football who hadn't been into football before. I think some of the people I spoke to for this piece think genuinely think that Paul Gascoigne got a whole a lot more diverse range of people mm. into football. And then Bobby Robson leaves and Graham Taylor's got to take that on. And um, it's quite a tough job to to walk into, really. And so he's, one of his first statements was to drop Paul Gascoigne. And, um, Perhaps he decided that Gascoigne could not knock it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but he came back for Euro 96. Was that the absence that he had, not just from the England team, but from... Uh, the English football, having played for Rangers, having played for Lazio during that period, he'd not really played in England at all. Was there a more excitement around the idea that we'd be seeing Paul Gascoigne back in England at Euro 96? In between 1990 and 96, he didn't play that much. I mean, he missed, I think he said, he, he thinks he missed the, the first big injury he had in the in the 91 Cup final. Mm. Um, 
self-inflicted. Um, he um, he thinks I think he said he missed twenty one England games from then until sort of ninety four or, or so when he came back and played a few more games, and then he uh, got injured again doing a crazy tackle on someone um, when he was at Lazio in training. So then he missed another load of games. Mm. Um, but even I think when that he, might have been a young Alessandro Nesta. I yeah, think you're right. Yes, it yeah. was. Yeah. Um, but even when he did play in that period, I mean, he did actually play in both the Holland games in the in the qualifiers for the ninety four. World Cup, which I think we sort of forget. I think I think with Gascon, we sort of assume he didn't play in any games apart from those famous ones. We sort mm-hmm. of assume he came back from injury for for, 90, for the nineteen ninety one for Spurs for the ninety one Cup final, and they just sort of nursed him through those Cup games, which I think is kind of true. And then he didn't play at all apart from these amazing games. But he did. He he did actually play in both the Holland games uh, for Graham Taylor in the ninety four qualifiers, and didn't. I mean, you could put that down to. Graham's tactics, perhaps. Um, certainly Gaza does. Um, but yeah, I mean, even in the um, in the Norway, uh, the two Norway games, those two Norway games, he, I mean, he argued, arguably helped motivate the opposition with his famous, can we swear on this podcast? <laughs> Go on. <laughs> I'll allow it. Yeah, I mean, they are someone, so, so he was walking, I think it was just before the game, just before, on the way to the first game, and, and a Norwegian com- uh, journalist, poked a microphone in his face and said, hey, do you have a message for the Norwegian people? And he said, fuck off Norway, (laughs) Um, which is a brilliant way of motivating. And we got one point out of those two games. So, yeah, Wasn't there a suggestion that he might go on loan to a Norwegian team later in his career, which... (laughs) <laughs> was met with rather short shrift. It was, yeah. He went. I didn't realise this, but I, just doing the piece, it came. It, it cropped up. Yeah, it's basically. I think it was ninety eight, and he was at Middlesbrough, and he'd actually. I mean, after ninety eight, again after the ninety eight World Cup, he didn't get picked for that, and I think people assume his career just finished. Mm. Actually, he had quite a good season for Middlesbrough afterwards, mm. but then injuries kicked in, and um, and then they tried to Brian Robson, I think it was was manager, and he tried to loan him out to. Some Norwegian clubs, and they literally laughed at him. I mean, they just there was some, yeah. I mean, there was there was I think some swearing going on there as well. Um, no, it's obviously quite early in this episode, but I'm going to put out quite a big question, which is Alex Ferguson called Paul Gascoigne the best player of his era. I presume he means the best English player of his era by that. But can I get everyone's opinion on that. Do you think he was the most talented during that period? English, yes. Absolutely, for for quite a lot, quite a large era. Um, yeah, he he was a talisman of that team. the The best moments of that era were came from Gaza. Um, he just had such a natural ability to glide past players, to create. He could do everything. You know, he, he could create, he could score goals. He he may not have been a natural leader in terms of a a natural sort of captain, conventional sort of captain, but in terms of someone who inspired that team just through his sheer force of personality and sheer ability, then absolutely. Um, I think that's that's what England are missing today. You know, they've, they've got a very good team, but do they have a, a central midfielder that's going to grab a game by the scruff of the neck? Maybe not quite at the moment. And that, I mean, the Gazers don't come along very often, so you can't expect that. But yeah, certainly the current England team would, would be a hell of a lot better for, for a Gaza. Gary, what kind of player was... Gascoigne, was he a, a natural number 10? What kind of role would we see him playing in the kind of modern Premier League, for instance? The idea now would be that, he, that he's a number 10 because he's a dribbler and he's very much a touch player and he, and he um, could certainly unlock those doors, unlock those defences, pick the locks. Um, but actually, he did a lot of running and he was doing a lot of running right up in, uh, in Euro 96, the, the, the semi-final. 
you know, he, he he got to that. He very nearly got to that ball in in extra time. That ball, everybody knows the one I'm talking about. <laughs> that cross, he very nearly got to it in extra time. He was, I mean, he was he was puffing a bit in the later stages of some of the day games, but the evening games where it was cooler. Um, he, he, I mean, Venables didn't make a single substitution in that semi-final, which is still amazing because he could have made three. I think it was the first tournament with three subs. Didn't make any mm. because Venables knew his, his first choice 11 and Gascoigne was in it. He wavered a bit. He took him off against Switzerland, I think. Um, and he, according to Stuart McCall in this issue, he was about to take him off against Scotland. Um, for, I mean, England's formation in at Euro 96 was very fluid. Uh, but at heart, normally, it wasn't a back three. It was, it was more often a back four. With uh, well, it was a four-one-three-two, I guess you'd call it, with Ince minding the shop and the three in front of him being Gascoigne, Anderton, and McManaman. Now that's a heck of a midfield. Yeah. You know, there's basically Ince. He's going around doing all the tidying up in that <laughs> midfield. But the younger lads on the wing are also getting back and getting in the way. Yeah. Allardyce used to say that JJ Kochi, you might not be able to tackle, but you can stand in the way. <laughs> you know, so there was a lot of positional discipline in that midfield, even if you know some of them were you know even worse at tackling than Paul Scholes mm. I, think, um, I think Gascoigne put the little bit of magic I think that was the I think that's probably it's interesting what you're saying but we could do with it now but I think it's one of the problems with England we've had over the years is that we've had this talisman mm. and then the trouble is if they're not around and I think that's what happened in the Taylor years of England it, and it's funny how the talisman always seems to get injured just before the major tournament <laughs> so the back just before it Funnily enough, his hand began. <laughs> That's right. And if you think about those newspaper uh, articles before the um, with Beckham and Rooney and the toe, they had yeah, the yeah. Um, what's the what's it the metatarsal, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and printing the, the the mat to prey on and, and all that kind of <laughs> That's thing. That's right. You know. The problem with that is is that then the rest of the players are like, okay, well, are we any good? I mean, you know, it doesn't really. I think yeah. the one good thing we have now is that in some way. I mean, we could really do with that creative midfielder, but that, yeah, that yeah, focus yeah. on one player is yeah. not always helpful. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, and I think Southgate yeah. recognizes that as well. Mm. It's no, probably more as a manager. Sorry. More focused on, on on two players now, I suppose. Certainly, Kane mm. would be a massive loss, but you've still got Sterling, I suppose. Yeah. But other good players as well. But those would certainly be still your two key players. Just we, to answer the earlier question, by the way, on whether he's the best player of his era, I think everybody loved watching Gascoigne play. Mm. But consistency is a lot of of greatness. Yeah. Consistency is a lot of greatness. Confucius <laughs> never said, except in the <laughs> translation. Um, and he wasn't that consistent. There were times, even within Euro 96, where he was treading water a bit. Yeah. I mean, it's not quite the same era, but Shearer's got to be mentioned as one of the best players of that era. It's easy to take him for granted because he's now, you know, the slightly narky block off match of the day. Yeah. But um, he, I mean, he's just scored a phenomenal number of goals mm. for a phenomenal number of seasons. And then actually, uh, sorry, on that point, I saw someone saying earlier on today, in fact, that uh, the thing to remember about Shearer is that while he won the league once, he didn't actually play for a great team over yeah. a long period of time. It's Southampton, Blackburn and Newcastle. So yeah. to score 260 Premier League goals yeah. for those teams, mm. actually, and, bad. and have two crucial ligament injuries as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. And to change his, to change his game as he went along. But yeah. we're not really here to talk <laughs> no, about, about, about Gascoigne and um, whether he was the best. I mean, I think that's the thing. In 1990, he kind of, because I think leading up to 1990, we had a, we had a disastrous Euro 88 when we thought we were going to do well. And all the talk, all the the, the Zeitgeist then was all about us being behind Europe and we weren't in Europe and and Tony Adams got bombed out of the team at that point. He's another one who had a sort of 
Damascene kind of sort of change in that tournament as well. Um, well, but by the time Gascoigne got to 96, I don't think there was that much expectation about him at all. Mm. I think he'd been playing okay. in Scotland for a few years, and they, yeah, I yeah. think we still, even then, we still had, there was still the British press, the English press, I should say, had a, still had that, you know, look down on it a little bit. Yeah. So, and the, the work, because of the, the stuff before the tournament, I think there was a lot of people, there was a, there was a poll where 88% of people didn't think he should be even in the, the squad, I That's think. so. Incredible, really. I mean, Chris used the phrase sheer force of personality earlier. That is probably not a phrase that gets used a lot about Gareth Southgate. I think in the run-up to... Before Euro 96, I think he only had four England caps. And then at the tournament, he started in all five games. Was there a perhaps then a surprise that he became so uh, central to that team at Euro 96? He was also nearly 26. Yeah. I mean, the idea is that he was a, a young player mm. and an exile, but he, but he wasn't. He was uh, September 1970, he was born. So he, yeah. was, he was knocking on 26. And he'd been, uh, he'd, he'd played nearly. He played nearly 200... Knocking on 26. Yeah, I know. You uh, imagine. He, he played nearly 200 games for Palace and they'd gone up and down a couple of times. I think when they went down the third time, he moved to, to Villa, yeah. who were then, you know, the, the establishment, but not, you know, a, often challenging for the title. Um, he... Um, what he represented for Venables uh, was adaptability. I think Southgate played in four different positions during Euro 96. Uh, he played as left centre-back in the second half against Scotland after playing as the defensive midfielder. So at half-time, Venables took off Pierce, kept the back three, but um, uh, moved Southgate back and mm. uh, brought on Jamie Redknapp as a sort of quarter, quarterback or right. passing midfielder to try and get in behind Scotland. Um, he also played in the middle as well. You know, he, he moved about and Venables wanted that adaptability. He needed that adaptability. Gareth Southgate was not one of the stellar players of the nascent Premier League. Mm. He was a good a good fellow. Just one of those slightly odd people that can play in two positions. He can, oh, apparently, he can play well, in midfield. He was mainly that block that Roy Keane stamped on that time, wasn't he? Well, um, you're going to have to narrow that down. <laughs> <laughs> one of the blocks that Roy, Roy Keane stamped on that time. <laughs> you know, he, he, uh, but he was all right with the ball at his feet. Yeah. And then what happened after that was Rio Ferdinand came along, mm. who was even better with the ball at his feet. But uh, Southgate, I, I had a check while doing my due diligence and, uh, and, uh, and investigation for this. Southgate played, um, he started 12 of Hoddle's first 14 games after Euro 96. So Hoddle trusted him and kept yeah, yeah. him about, but then he kind of got eclipsed by Ferdinand after that. Well, you can see how he suits a three-man, or he suited a three-man uh, central defence, which obviously Hoddle continued after that. Um, in terms of his ability, like I said, to want to play in different positions across that and also his ability on the ball was, was good. And I think his specific role during the Netherlands game had been to man-mark Dennis Bergkamp, yeah. which I'm sure no one envies. But In the middle of a back four, so it's yeah. another different role. It's, um, but apparently, you know, that was, a, that was a great game and as someone, perhaps Bobby Robson, said that, you know, that was a world-class performance. Bobby, no, Bobby Charlton, I think it might have been actually. But, um, but you know, to, to do something like that, I'm sure, really made his name quite early on in that tournament. Well, he certainly settled into Venables' team and squad. Venables definitely had the players that he wanted to be his first 11. Uh, with, I mean, I think he only chose 12 starters during the entire tournament. Um, and two of those, and, and the changes were enforced by suspensions for um, David Platt and then Gary Neville. I'm sort of assuming that... Sorry, Paul Linton, then Gary Neville. David Platt came in as the 12th starter. He wasn't one of the starting 11. Sorry, sorry. I'm sort of assuming that Southgate probably got in the squad... 
partly because of his versatility, because I think he came through at Palace as a midfielder originally, I think. Um, so that's always useful. I mean, squads in particular, you know, if you can play a few different positions. But um, I mean, that period, that um, when Venables took over, they didn't, because because England were hosting, we didn't have any actual um, competitive games. He played all sorts of people. All sorts, I mean, there's <laughs> all, all sorts of people who've got it, caps. It came together quite late, didn't mm. it? I, I, yeah, apparently the Swiss game was his third start. Uh, yeah. Southgate um, after Bulgaria and China, China, <laughs> China away. Always a good one yeah. to blood the youngsters or the nearly twenty-six-year-olds. But yeah, <laughs> Venables had obviously made his mind up and had got the core of it or most of his team. But he he needed somebody that could step out of defence or move around. And yeah, he he was he was trying a few different cards. Was Venables? There's, some, there's a piece in there's um, it's certainly mentioned in the in the in this issue about how he was influenced by Ajax and. That would fit into that that total football yeah. idea of different mm. players being able to play in different yeah. positions. I mean that that's that really um, fits that idea, doesn't it? Well, he also benefited from Mark Wright's injury because Mark Wright got injured. He was going to be, I think, the guy that stepped out. I mean, he probably wouldn't have played in midfield, but um, he would have been in the otherwise because I think he played in the last friendly, but one right and then did his knee. Yeah, he did again. that in '86 as well, Mark Wright. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting because actually I would have ranked Mark Wright as possibly the most forgotten. If you look at those twelve starters that we, you know, we've already talked about, Mark Wright, I really think probably would have been about thirteenth of those. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? The, no one now kind of remembers mm. Mark Wright. Where even if Gareth Southgate hadn't become England manager, I think Southgate would have had a a, a longer lasting memory in, in English football fans' I, minds. I've got a theory that if I was asking maybe the younger people around this table, if if Gareth South if uh, Gareth Southgate hadn't missed that penalty. Would you know that he was even in that team? It, it'd certainly be if, you, if you're talking about <laughs> if you're talking about the one that's most likely to be a pointless answer. On pointless, <laughs> yes, yeah, he'd be exactly. up there. He'd yeah, be up there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, not knowing he missed, missed the penalty, of course. But <laughs> it's one of those players who doesn't, you know, he doesn't mm. he doesn't stand out. He's, and that's why managers like him because he does a steady job, and you probably yeah. don't even mm. notice him. And, and a lot of play, a lot of fans probably wouldn't really notice him. So I think probably I, I can't really no, remember the, much mm. else about. He's the kind of player where you you would have might, maybe you've gone. Was Sol Campbell in the Euro 96 squad? Would yeah. he have played in the mm. back with Adams? If you're enjoying this episode, you'll love the Euro 96 special issue of 442 magazine, which is on sale in shops and online now. In it, we've got a long read on the tournament, a diary of every single match day, reports on all the England games, interviews with players including Paul Ince, Teddy Sheringham, Darren Anderton and Carol Poborski, Profiles of Paul Gascoigne and Gareth Southgate and the full story behind Badil and Skinner's fantasy football. You can subscribe to the magazine for £12.25 every three months, getting issues delivered to your door for less than £4 each. That's over 100 pages of brilliant football journalism 13 times a year, including Euro 2020 and new season previews. Head to myfavouritemagazines.co.uk forward slash fftpod20 to subscribe now you can also find that link in the show notes for this episode below now something that we vaguely referenced already um the dentist chair mm. can you talk us through that <laughs> presumably it was on the same tour of the the far east that included the uh the yes, away trip yeah. to china but what what happened and and how did it come about well it's quite interesting this because it's sort of I mean it's always been seen as a bit unfair on Gaza that I mean because there's that famous newspaper front page and he's right in the middle of it. Mm. 
Um, but, you know, the, the rest of the squad, I mean, Brian Robson was one of the coaches and he was one of the most main guys who was sort of involved <laughs> early on. His shirt got ripped off pretty early. Um, uh, yeah, they, I mean, it's quite interesting because I swear, it's a bit unfair on Gaza that he gets the brunt of that. However, there were, I mean, he basically had a fight on the plane over there, mm. which didn't get reported, even though it got reported to the FA. Um, and then he had a fight, and then he went around smashing up the plane on the way back. So, which did get reported, and and the the team took collective responsibility for. So, it was quite a fascinating. So he got he kind of got, he got all, he took all the blame for that particular incident. Well, mm. most of it anyway. Whereas well, he kind the flip of side of tabloid fame. Yeah, you know, he'd, he'd created this accidentally created this Gaza brand. Uh, so he was the tallest poppy. So when the tabloids wanted to wage hell. On um, on the England team, he was the one. It just so happened that they that they got the picture of. But I think it was his birthday. Though, yes, well, yeah, I was going to say directly or indirectly, it was his fault because it was his birthday that sparked all this. Because <laughs> um, it was his birthday the day after. So as soon as it went to midnight, yeah. they started drinking, and yes. that's, that's how it happened. And so this, <laughs> this this was a drinking session at the end of the tour. Am I right? There was no more matches after that. So they Correct. got their kind of. You know, it's professional responsibilities out of the way. And they'd all been auditioning, because I think it was a 27-man squad or something like that went out, or maybe 26, but they were mm. basically auditioning. Some of them were not going to go to Europe yeah, yeah. Uh, 96. Venables probably needed a quiet night in the hotel by himself. It's all right, I'll send Brian out with him. <laughs> What's the worst that can happen? Yeah. Um, but, you know, they'd done their job. And, they'd, and they'd done their job, and, and they needed to go and... Go but and I think the, the other the thing is they, they just, I think they just played like a Hong Kong Select Eleven or something like that Farcical, in the last friendly. Yeah, yeah. Where Mike, Mike, Mike Duxbury, Duxbury played in it for Hong yeah. Kong. <laughs> I think he was out there playing for a club at the time. Maybe a couple of other English players, I think, as well. Um, been above non-league, I think. Yeah, yeah I think I met him over in, uh, or something like that. But Mike Duxbury was over... I, I went to Dubai for 4-4-2 about... God blimey, that was a long time ago. But yeah, Mike, Mike Duxbury was over there working with kids there. Mm. So he was, yeah. he was very much sort of um, like coaching in Asia. <laughs> so yeah. I, remember, yeah, I remember speaking to him and he said, oh, well, we went out for a dinner with well, the, with the, the Hong Kong Select 11 and the England team. And they went out for a lovely dinner together. And I said, did you go, did you go on to the nightclub after? He said, no. <laughs> <laughs> so the England players then went off on their own to, for what happened. And then, but in this Hong Kong uh, Select 11 game, I think they'd only won 1-0. It's certainly been yeah. very, very unimpressive mm. against a team they should have been expected to beat about. Yeah, yeah. People are expecting to beat about 7 0 or something. So there was already like, well, this is not looking promising for the tournament. Then Dentist Chair happens straight after that. And people are thinking, well, this really isn't looking good for the tournament. Yeah, I think the protests around that quality of that Hong Kong 11 go on to this day. At least uh, I think that's what the Hong Kong protests are about. The, um, uh, but the, in, in this bar, the dentist chair was the kind of the main attraction in the middle of it. And it was something, did you put your feet in stirrups or something and then people would pour spirits tequila, was it? Into, into your mouth. Yeah. And so that is what became the, the famous front page and that is what became the famous celebration. I mean, the, the, the fact that Brian Robson was there, I think is quite interesting that Terry Venables possibly let him out as the... <laughs> Uh, as the serious adult, given that it was at, it was at Italia 90 where uh, Gascoigne dropped a bed on Brian Robson's foot, I believe. Well, yeah, he was, was basically, there was, there was some sort of hijinks going on. And it was, I'm seeing Gascoigne around the hotel just, it seems like that's his natural environment is to be around a hotel with footballers. That's where he's mm. happiest because then he's got people to play with. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's sort of, and, and then, yeah, I mean, Robson was the captain of England and he, yeah, the, I think, Robson tried to tip a bed on him or something, but it was Gascoigne who sort of started the right. the whole antics. So. Yeah. So, so, I mean, certainly it feels like, I might be wrong and I might be too young and didn't kind of see enough of him, but it feels like these tournaments brought out the best of Gascoigne on the pitch 
and possibly also the worst of him mm. off it. Is that a fair analysis or actually was he that good and that bad the rest well, of the time as well? Certainly he was a man for the big stage. Mm. When, when those big games came around, he was ready for it. He was prepared to take that pressure and he performed. Um, now, yes, other, other things went on as well, but I suspect those other things were going on all the time with Gaza. Yeah. It's just they got more widely reported when it happened near a tournament, to be honest. Exactly that. Um, I think what might bring out the worst of him, if, if you want to use that phrase, is being cooped up. Mm. I mean, he's, his second autobiography, which I think is called Being Gaza or something, Being mm. Gaza rather than My Story, that's the one, yeah, is just a fascinating, it's basically a 12-step thing about his various addictions and, and mental issues. Yeah. You know, he talks about his OCD. I don't think he mentions ADHD specifically, but yeah. he's obviously on that spectrum. Mm. I don't think that's an unfair thing to say. He, he used to be, you know, he used to be a very fidgety, bored child. I imagine he was, mm. he was you know, being, yeah, Italia 90, he was taking on Americans in the hotel at tennis and things like that. And, you know, people couldn't believe that he couldn't. Why can't he just rest? Because he's eternally yeah, agitated. Yeah. I think, you know. Tony Cotty told me a story recently about uh, they're in Albania, I think it's like 88, 89 or something. And he was just in his hotel room um, with bars of soap, throwing them at the chickens outside. And, uh, and Bobby Robson came in and said, what, what, what are you doing, Gaza? He said, oh, I'm just, just throwing soap at the chickens. Out. <laughs> and Bobby, but Bobby knew Gaza by saying, okay, on you go. <laughs> as long as you're not dropping an iron bed. He was only like two games in. He, that was about his third squad. Yeah. So um, uh, I think it's quite interesting. It depends who you talk to because I personally, I think, I, from doing from immersing myself in Gaza for a few weeks, though, I, I came out of it thinking, and, and speaking to a few people, and it came up a few times about how much he actually loved that. And I think he was him being cooped up. He always was cooped up. As soon as Gaza mania happened, he couldn't leave the house. Really, you know. So him being in a hotel, I think, I genuinely think he, especially with ninety eight and what happened with ninety eight, him smashing up the hotel room, and I think he wanted to be away with the lads in a hotel as much mm. as he wanted to play football. Yeah. It's not so much. It's not just playing in the World Cup. He wanted to be. He'd already done almost as much as he could do in a World Cup or a tournament. I think he, you know, that, the idea of spending the spending a month not being with the lads in a hotel because, as I say, he's he's with people who are also bored. Then, yeah, you know, and it's so everyone's like he is suddenly. I um obviously everyone knew about Gaza, the character, the clown, uh, during this period. But certainly, as someone who is a bit younger. Actually, it's become a lot clearer to me throughout the entire time that I've been kind of aware of him as a persona of the darker side of his character. And like you say, the OCD, the, uh, bipolar disorder, ADHD, I think bulimia is clearly something that he suffered from. He would eat a lot and then starve himself and drink only water for days. Um, but also, uh, I mean, I think the, the press intrusion caused a, a, a grave consequence to his mental health and also the lots of allegations of uh, things like domestic violence. Um, how much of that were people aware of at the time and how much of it, you know, was it difficult because of the way the tabloids covered it or, you know, what was what was seen of, of his darker elements? I don't think I don't think people were particularly aware of it before '96. I think the 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 particular incident with his wife mm. was just after. Yeah, yeah, it was early Glenn Hoddle's reign, and there was this awkward thing. Was I mean, incredibly awkward press conference where he they put him. They actually still picked him for the squad, and they shouldn't have done. Right. And it was a, a PR disaster, and. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I mean, it's it's an interesting one when you when you're writing about Gaza because there's so many things that now would you know, in the current culture, would get someone cancelled, as they call mm. it. You know, it would basically, you wouldn't be able to talk to them anymore. It's amazing the affection people still have for him. And I think it's because people realise how troubled he is and how there's no point um, castigating Gaza anymore. He does it himself to yeah. himself. So I think, um, I don't, so I don't think that people were aware of it, particularly before 96. Certainly after that, it, everything caved in on him and I think mm. it became all too obvious. Um, but he ended the tournament on a high... Um, one of England's star players finally back on track after injuries. Was there a big hope that this would be a new start for him and that the Gaza of old would be back? Well, he was 29 by that point. Yeah. So, I mean, there was no reason to think that he couldn't go to um, France 98, mm. which, you know, was, well, next time we'll definitely do it, was the, uh, was the English clarion call. Um, what Gascoigne had what what had happened to Gascoigne uh, in those two years was that he'd found a manager who'd understand, understood him, could fit him into a system. He started more games under Venables than under any other manager. He played more under Robson, but mainly as a sub because he couldn't fit him into the team. Um, and and as you, as you mentioned before, I've forgotten about that, that um, Graham Taylor had preferred Golden Cowens. Now, Sid Cowens was a good footballer. He could pass <laughs> it over, but he was not Paul Gascoigne. Um so he'd, fi- he'd finally found a manager. He'd found a home, basically, and it's a pity that it was England rather than a club. That I mean, he was, he was happy at Rangers, but he was also, you know, starting to go a bit off the leash, off the field as well. Um, the the hope was that well, Glenn Hoddle should be able to fit him into a team because Glenn Hoddle was a big misunderstood genius as well that should have won more caps. Hoddle the player and Hoddle the manager were very different. So I, I don't think I think there was hope. Whether there was expectation or not that Gascoigne would stay at the centre of all things England, yeah. I don't well, know. I, I mean, I think that. there's obviously, you know, it's rem- still remembered widely about what happened just before '98 and him not getting not getting in, in the squad in the end. Um, and I think it's sort of people look back at it and and sort of think that well, that seems a ridiculous decision not to take him to '98. He was Paul Gascoigne. He must have been one of the best players back then. He, he still had talent, but I, mean, I must admit, I, there, were, there were friendlies directly before that squad was selected where I remember him not being very good, mm-hmm. where he gave the ball gave the ball away constantly. That must have frustrated Hoddle. Um, I think he got criticised in the press for those performances. Now, it was still probably a surprise that he didn't get in the squad at all because he'd gone from a starter in those games to yeah, not being yeah. in. But I think Hoddle had just decided, well, I'm going to drop him from the team. Once he's not in the team... He becomes a problem. Exactly. All right, a, a problem to manage, yeah, as yeah. In person management, um, and and it was. I think was he still playing in the second division then? I mean, the thing is that Gascoigne was playing for Rangers, who you know who were doing very well as a club. But as as you mentioned before, the the, the if you achieve greatness in Scotland, there's always the well, could you do it in England yeah. thing, particularly if you're English. Um, and then when he moved to England, it was actually to a second division club in Middlesbrough. They were, you know, they were they had big plans. They were trying to get promoted, um, and and it's still Middlesbrough with the greatest will in the world. It's not Manchester United. It's mm. not Tottenham Hotspur. He just yeah, he just just moved to Middlesbrough just before that, and I think unfortunately that made him he was nearer to London as well, so he was easier to go out with. Mm. Started hanging out with 
Chris Evans and I actually think I mean well, I also he was working with Brian Robson who's the kind of guy that takes the players down the pub afterwards well that's <laughs> right yes that's right it's um it was, I mean Paul Merson left Middlesbrough to go to Villa they seem to be Villa and like, Southgate went the other way yeah. seem to be yeah. Villa and Middlesbrough used to swap players quite <laughs> and Merson went from the Gaza era Middlesbrough to Villa to get away from the drinking culture right okay. um I think after I tend to think of Gaza at 96 as a bit of a last hurrah to be honest and I actually I actually think there's a bit of a parallel in some ways, we could look at it as like there's, I mean, um, Gaza leaves it in, tri- in triumph and, and, and uh, Gareth finishes the tournament as a sort of pariah a little bit. But actually, I think it's quite similar because I tend to remember at the time after we after Gaza's miss, the, the, the miss. Yeah, the, last, the miss. Yeah. The miss with the, one of the, the perhaps England's greatest miss. <laughs> <laughs> um, I tend to remember after that, we, a lot of people went, Oh, if he hadn't been so fat, or if he hadn't been, mm. if he hadn't had that, that all that booze before the tournament, and suddenly it all went full circle again. Right. And quite a lot of people were saying, actually, to be honest though, if you watch it, I mean, he, as you say, he's making a surging run into the box yeah. in in extra time. Yeah, 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 everyone forgets that bit. You know, yeah. people forget and they, well, because he looks so cumbersome the way well, he actually. I think he expects the keeper to get yeah, something exactly. on it as well, so he's kind of checking yeah. his run on so, purpose. So he would have got there. Yeah. It's just he. He was thinking that he was going to take a touch and he'd need to check his run, like you say, to tap it in. But you're right, there were question marks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because it had kind of been, it was almost, I mean, not to get too biblical, but it was, it was kind of the prodigal son. He, he had literally left and gone elsewhere mm-hmm. not long after Italian 90. Um, and it hadn't all been rosy for the prodigal son while he yeah. was away. But then suddenly he was back in the England team in a tournament um, and things were starting to go well. So it... It feels. I, I know what you mean about Alastair R. Wouldn't necessarily go that far because there was there was a hope that he might be able that Hoddle might be able to get the best out of him from from where from where I was, but um, I don't think people were relying on him. And, mm. and as Chris says, in the run up to the World Cup, he, he was certainly not the first name on the on the team sheet, even if he'd been a Gareth Southgate style dream to have around the whole yeah. time. So Southgate, you know, captain sensible, obviously his. Tournament ends on a dreadful low, missing the penalty against Germany. What was the reaction to that? How you know what kind of treatment did he get, and how did he deal with it? I think. Sorry, I think he certainly got. I mean, there's always going to be idiots who. I mean, I think until until we became quite quite um, in, until England got very good at missing penalties, mm. um, <laughs> you know, and became quite consistent at it. I think it we a big uh, club at that point. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we used to blame. I mean, there was quite a lot of people just blame people and not understand how you could miss a penalty <laughs> and, um, and not realise how. Um, so I think the problem. I mean, I think there was a lot of sympathy because he seemed like a nice chap. You know, he was, he was clearly wasn't his fault. He'd, and yeah. then I think people realised how come. I mean, he did. It did good of him to actually step up and take one before some people who perhaps should have done. Um, that's, yeah, that's the main. No, I, th- I think. That, I mean, I, I seem to remember at the time a lot of people said, well, "Why didn't Paul Ince take it and stuff like that?" And but I mean, it, it, and it we wasn't... have an answer for that in the new issue. We of do four four two. We do available. In all good news. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it wasn't like Beckham in 98. I mean, Beckham, when he got sent off in 98, people really went for him. Yeah. And But obviously that's a, a, as an instinctive reaction, but a deliberate action that got him sent off. Whereas Southgate, everyone understood he's trying to score that penalty. Yeah. Um, so well, it's slightly different. But. Yeah, when, you, when we talk about vilification, I mean, really, there, there's an element of immediately after the event, but mm. then there's... The season after, and the season after Italia ninety, every ground that Forrest went to, Pierce was getting pelters. Every oh. ground that, um, well, every time Chris Waddle was seen in public, he was getting pelters. David Beckham. But there's a thing about that in that 
the uh, the players that you hate on the opposition team when you're on the terrace are the hard guy and the guy that's going to hurt you. Mm-hmm. You know, now Pierce was the hard guy, mm-hmm. but Waddle was a very good player. Beckham was a very good player. Ince, you know, was the hard guy. Batty also um, from '98. So you would boo those players. Booing Gareth Gareth Southgate. Gareth Southgate. Booing Gareth Southgate seemed a bit. Off. It seemed a bit unfair. I mean, even among even on the terrace, it was like you'd give him a bit of chip, maybe, yeah. but you wouldn't necessarily really hound every single touch. He still seems to have that childlike quality. Like he kept saying that he, he was nearly 26 at the time, but he yeah. looked so young. And the way he carried himself seemed to be of a very young man in that squad. Something very English and unassuming about yeah. him. He certainly didn't have the kind of like force about him that you would think this guy's going to be fine if we give him grief. I mean, that said, um, while I was researching it, um, he, sp- he spoke to um, 442 in, in 2012 and said, it affected me massively afterwards and it still does. Mm. Every single day it's mentioned. You know, so we say he, he wasn't as vilified, but yeah, yeah. I mean... I mean, I imagine it was mentioned more than once every every day to David Beckham, although he was behind. But the head, the headline of the feature about him in this magazine is "Why didn't you just belt it?" Which yeah. is a quote from his own <laughs> mum. Yeah. It's fair Cheers enough, though. <laughs> I mean, that, obviously, that this magazine has it's a fair enough. Well, it, it's, <laughs> yeah, I'm with his mum. <laughs> it's fair enough us saying that because it's a Euro '96 themed magazine. Whereas yeah. I think actually the nice thing about having a second act like he's having is that now actually if someone comes up to him in the street, they probably won't mention that. Yeah. They'll mention mm. well. Last, the, the last waistcoat. Although it, it's, it's interesting <laughs> though, like even like last with the World Cup, like everyone's waiting for a penalty shootout, so we could all talk about how he's missed that penalty there, but now it's redemption. <laughs> and he was even he was like even when it's redemption, like can we just stop talking about Euro '96 and that <laughs> that a bit? Because because like uh, Pauline says in this magazine, because Ince went through the same thing on a slightly reduced scale, but with missing the penalty against Argentina in '98, mm. that even success, he could win the Euros this year, and. One, people will talk about, oh, this is redemption for Euro 96. Yeah. And he'll be, again, he'll be like, can we just forget that last bit? Just think about this this tournament. But even if he wins this tournament, it won't, in his or at least Paul Ince thinks that it won't be redemption for Euro 96. Euro 96 will always hurt, sadly, yeah. because it's a separate experience. Mm. And if he wins this tournament, that would be a great experience, but not related to Euro 96 for him, because no matter what he does, he could win 18 World Cups. And Euro 96 would still hurt. Well, I mean, not to reach for too grand or horrific a comparison, but the Americans will always talk about Pearl Harbor, despite the fact that they basically (laughs) won the war single-handed. Unless he puts himself in the squad and then scores the winning penalty. Possibly. (laughs) I mean, it's worth a try. (laughs) I think think you've slightly kind of answered this question a little bit, but finally, I just kind of want to ask all of you whether you think that Euro 96 was a defining tournament for both players and in their footballing careers, rather than obviously anything that has come afterwards? I think not, as much as I should be drumming up enthusiasm for these, <laughs> uh, of this issue of the magazine. I, I th- when I think of Gascoigne, although I think of Euro 96, mm. I think of Italia 90 and the, the hope and excitement mm. that is... Uh, created, generated by any young player. I mean, he wasn't very young, but any young player that starts to make, yeah, you know, yeah. the work, the, their story is yet to be written. Mm. Um, Euro 96, as, 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 as Sally said before, Euro 96 was a bit of a last arrival. It was, it was, you know, it was, 
it was a good summer for him. But when I think of Gascoigne, I think of him crying. Yeah, mm. I, I agree and with I that. I think of the yeah. unfulfilled promise, and I think of him as as a deeply flawed and and, and you know uh, as as a human who I hope gets better. I hope yeah, gets yeah. help. That's what I think of now. When I think of his football career, I think of Italian ninety. For Southgate, I now think of the World Cup. I think that's that has eclipsed. Yeah, you're on ninety six and one. You know, one fluffed penalty. That's interesting, though, in, in that I think for the comparing the two tournaments, that image of Gaza crying is the bigger tragedy for him, even though England didn't go on to yeah. get to that final. And it's interesting what you say about never being able to properly yeah. redeem yourself for the penalty mm. miss, that actually it's the yeah. tragedy that really does kind of. Yeah, well, I, I, I slightly disagree with Gary on in terms of which. Di- which tournament most defines them? And well, I agree on Gascoigne. I, I do think the first image that mm. comes to my mind is the tears in '90. Certainly, '96 and the goal against Scotland is a very, very close second. Yeah. But for Southgate, I think, it, like I say, unless he wins a tournament, and even maybe then, the first thing I'll always think of is that penalty in '96. So as sad as that is for him, mm. it's just it was such an iconic moment. I think, yeah, I think as a, as players, I think the two defining moments of their international careers. Um, certainly are those two moments, the, the goal, Gaza's goal against Scotland. I mean, because the crying, even though it was, yeah, I mean, the first image, if you see a, a video of him or something, you know, or, um, something, there'll be, a, that'll be the picture. Um, but I think with him, that's not him, he's not playing, that's not a playing moment. I think the actual moment of action, because in Italia 90, he set up a lot of goals and, and did quite a lot of stuff, amazing lot of stuff that actually, he was England's best player. But that one defining moment of magic, I think, in his whole career, perhaps is that goal. Hmm. It's interesting actually looking at um, looking at those two tournaments because it, it's quite interesting stuff came up in doing the piece for the for this issue about how the impact that Gaza had on everything. I mean, just I mean, yeah. in terms of we were talking about about how um, certainly I think Alison Rudd uh, I spoke to who wasn't wasn't even a big Gaza fan actually hmm. thought didn't think didn't think it was all that. Um, but thought that certainly women, a lot more women got into football because it just this, it was this apex of people started, everyone got on board with this tournament and started watching it who hadn't really watched football because it had such a bad image beforehand. The middle classes. Yeah, basically. basically. <laughs> um, and then he, his tears mm-hmm. at the end of it yeah. just solidified well, it. I think never underestimate the power of seeing someone cry on television. Mm-hmm. Andy Murray won three sports personalities and part of that, obviously partly... Well, mainly down to Wimbledon, uh, winning Wimbledon, but also his popularity turned right around on crying at Wimbledon after yeah, the loss. Yeah. And I think it's the same with Gaza. It's interesting the other way around now. That what also came up was that um, the celebration after um, uh, after the Scotland goal, which we all love, and certainly I think we all love now. But actually, at the time, there was so much sort of lads culture going on, and it wasn't a lot of people weren't on board with that, and it wasn't universally popular. It seemed almost like two separate things. On one hand, he's showing this side of modern masculinity in 1990, the new man thing. And then suddenly in 1996, he's lying on his back and getting beer poured in. With the bleached hair as well. Yeah, (laughs) it's quite an interesting mix. So um, the image of Gaza is quite fascinating. I mean, it's changed over the... Changed changed quite a bit over those two tournaments. And now the image of him is completely different compared to that joyful figure we look at Mm. as a player. It's the difference between those two characters. Mm. Whereas Southgate, I think... You see the line from player through. I mean, I think Southgate as a manager, you can sort of see that perhaps football has changed to meet him. I think perhaps 10 years ago, it wouldn't have... You look at him at Middlesbrough, it didn't really... He seemed too nice. Whereas nowadays, players need a pat on the shoulder rather than a yeah. hand around the shoulder, pat on the back, that's it. <laughs> rather than to kick up the... Uh, no, I, I, I do... I, you know, it's, it's, 
easy to think actually that he and with the problems that he had came a bit too early and actually had it been 20 years later possibly due to uh, characters like him in the public eye so much that people are much more willing to talk openly about these kind of issues and alcoholism and, and depression that he clearly suffered from um, and it is the kind of great tragedy uh, of him but finally Chris we're going to come back to the question I asked at the beginning yes. which is who won more England caps Paul Gascoigne or Gareth Southgate uh, so the answer, Gareth Southgate, 57 caps. Paul Gascoigne, 57 caps. Oh, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> Cliffhanger ending. <laughs> Who will get to 58 first? Find out. <laughs> <laughs> Gary, Chris, I thank you so much for coming on. Thanks to Sai, Gary and Chris for joining me today. Don't forget you can subscribe to the magazine now at myfavouritemagazines.co.uk forward slash fftpod20. And the Euro 96 special is in shops now. The music you've heard is from Hal Griff, featuring none other than Gary Parkinson. And like this podcast, it's available on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening. <laughs>